Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we're joined today by a very special guest to to talk, well, uh, about the Second World War and then maybe uh, events... Drift. We're going to drift, aren't we? That's what we're going to do, Jim. We're going to drift, drift stylishly drift. to uh, a d- different event. So who, who are we talking to today, Jim? Well, we've got a local pal of mine, um, Colonel Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, who, um, former army officer tank man it has to be said a cavalryman um but then kind of sort of merged seamlessly into being a chemical biological and radiological and nuclear weapons expert um and actually you were the uk's joint chemical biological radiological and nuclear regiment commander weren't you at one point amish that's right um which in its its other sort of tournaments was the first royal tank regiment that uh, ah. we did a, had a dual role so i i was wondering where you could hide from those three things it's probably inside a challenge too isn't it if you shut sh- shut all the in- entrances to it well <laughs> I, I, you, I mean you, you're not you're absolutely right al it's got a very good mbc uh, system to protect it um but i must say my first experience in a chieftain sat on the inner german border in the late 80s uh, thinking about chemical and biological attack and everything else i mean it, it started my mind going that actually you know, fighting in a contaminated environment is bonkers. Um, yeah. And I've done everything in my life since to avoid doing that and, and uh, just about managed. Although with the Peshmerga, we were gassed by ISIS fighters near Mosul in 2016, which was right. an experience. Right. I, yeah, did, I, I didn't say, know that. Wow. Did, uh, I didn't know that just, happened. You can't just drop that in like that. That's just... <laughs> Oh, well, it's, it's really the hook that you have to read my memoir, which which ah, I was delighted to talk talk to at uh, Chalk Valley last year. No, that was very smoothly done, Hamish. Very strong. <laughs> the reason we're talking to you today is is really about tanks. I mean, you're you're a tank expert. You're obviously a veteran of the Gulf War as well, and um, and you've got you've got quite strong views about its use use of armor historically, but also. Um, in this current conflict that's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine. And we might get onto that later. But first of all, tank warfare. I mean, the key about tanks is not using them in isolation, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. Um, and we see so often when tanks are used in isolation um, that they're tremendous firepower. I mean, it's firepower, mobility and protection, which is what gives them the advantage on the battlefield. But if they're not protected... Um, they are a sitting target. You know, I saw that in Bosnia and Kosovo where tanks are easily taken out. And of course, um, we saw it in Iraq too. But as part of a combined arms group uh, with infantry, with artillery, with air power, it creates a shock action that can be so devastating. But when it's used piecemeal, you know, we might talk about Combray, the first combined arms tank battle in yeah, 1917, in 1917 yeah. which was a tremendous success, but it then culminated. They, they basically ran out of steam and tanks were easily picked off. Um, and the greatest gain of the First World War the next day turned into the greatest loss, I think. So absolutely key that it's part of a combined arms grouping individually that they're, they're a static pillbox easy to take off. 
I mean, Amish, would you say it's true to say that this is a lesson that uh, keeps needing to be sort of relearned, redigested, retranslated into doctrine and, and, and then practice? Or is it a thing that actually those in the know have always known getting everyone else up to catch up? That's the issue. Because you you can you can see through the Second World War, you know, the, 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 and it's uh, and it's a lot to do with the technology catching up with the people and the practice and all that sort of thing. And uh, but it's that a th- that seems to be the sort of rubber band on tank warfare, doesn't it? That 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 it snaps back to eventually to everyone realizing they've got to work together. And uh, do you see what I mean? I do. No, absolutely, Al. I mean, you've really put your finger on it. I think when you when you have a mark piece of equipment. You know, be it, be it a Challenger 2 or, or be it an Apache or, you know, an F-16, you sort of think these are such, you know, such expensive, valuable bits of kit. We've absolutely got to make the most of them. Uh, and using them piecemeal, uh, as as seems to happen, you know, we, we use it piecemeal in a in a operation in Bosnia and, and the tank gets taken out uh, or, or in Iraq or whatever. And then suddenly people realize, oh, crikey, yeah, why was it taken out? Well, it wasn't protected. It, it had this, that, and the other. So I think, it's, I think people sometimes get a bit wobbly-kneed when it comes to tanks around. And particularly, you know, when, when you're in a counterinsurgency and you're taking a lot of casualties from small arms fire, well, actually sitting in a tank, yeah, I've done it myself. You know, this stuff just pings off. In the first Gulf War, actually, I got engaged by one of my own side with a machine gun. You, you can sit there feeling pretty, pretty safe. So... I can absolutely see why they're, you know, partic- why, why people do um, sometimes revert to using them individually, and then as, exactly as you put out, you go right. Let's le- lessons learned. Well, yeah, we've relearned that lesson again. So I'm, I'm sure you guys are far more adept at it than me. The, the amount of times that we relearn lessons is, yeah, it's nothing new. It's from time immemorial. But you know, well, I, I think- I, I, do you know what I remember? I remember really, really well going to a swanky dinner by the uh, um, uh, chief of the defence staff at the time, who was Air Air Chief Marshal Sir Jock Stirrup, and I sat next to the um, assistant um, chief of the air staff. And he was talking about, you know, we were got chatting about, about Iraq and stuff. I was talking about sort of, you know, comparing the desert and stuff. And we were talking about how when Monty turned up, um, he listened to um, Cunningham and Tedder and did put the Desert Air Force headquarters right next door to 8th Army headquarters. And this became absolutely standard practice there on until the end of the war. And I remember the assistant chief of the air staff saying to me, yeah, we should really have another look at that because we don't really do that. (laughs) (laughs) It was just amazing. (laughs) And and there is this, and you know, there's this sort of sense that, I mean, you know, the, the kind of line of history repeating itself. I don't think history does repeat itself, but patterns of human behavior do and, and patterns of human forgetfulness do as well. Mm, I mean, it mm. is amazing how there isn't this kind of sort of, I don't know, you sort of get to a new age and you kind of think, well, we've got all this high tech weapons now. So all the all the rules of the past are, are, are absolutely defunct. But if there's one thing that I've noticed from from um, observing, admittedly from from a distance, what's going on in, in, um, in Ukraine is... How many scenes of the footage that I'm seeing and the circumstances of stuff getting shot up is exactly the same as it was in the Second World War? I mean, isn't isn't that so ironic that yeah. uh, you know we're all we all here coming out of Whitehall? You know, it's not the status quo ante. We don't want to fight the last war, mm. but but actually, it war ain't that different. And um, exactly as we're finding in Ukraine today, you know, we look at I've taken a ham- slam. In, in the press recently for writing about tanks and aircraft and the fact that we don't have very many in the British Army at the moment mm. because we sort of got rid of them. We, you know, yeah. It was cyber and, and digital and space 
But but as we're seeing in Ukraine, you know, all amount of cyber and digital is not going to take a T-72 out. And when you get down to the bare backs of fighting, which is what we are seeing, tanks and soldiers and artillery, actually, you know, nothing has changed since Combray. Well, the difference, the difference is range, essentially, isn't it? And the and the and the the essence of firepower, which is massively increased over over the decades, isn't it? That 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 what what an artillery barrage mm. can deliver now compared to the period, you know, the Second World War we talk about, it, it, that's all gone up. But but the, the principles re, are exactly exactly the same. You know, you you yeah. on the battle, it's on the battlefield, it's heavy metal that 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 has to be brought to bear. I mean, it is it is it is interesting though, isn't it? Because um, when when you look at, I mean, a perfect example of this as well is you know, like nineteen forty, when the, when the Royal Armoured Corps finally gets its tanks into France, arrive by a circuitous route, they get them into France, they deploy them in battle, and they are a fabulous new weapon. And the Matilda two is an absolute state of the art bit of kit, but they don't integrate its use with the infantry. And the Arras counterattack, of course, is is a famous moment where the Germans get get a fright because their methods are being appear to be being ap- applied back at them and all this sort of stuff. But actually, that's thrown together. That's the officers at the time going right. Hand signals, lads. Good luck, everyone. There's <laughs> there's no radios. They're certainly not integrated with the I- I- with their infantry. They're not integrated with their artillery. And it's a sort of it's the thing you say, Hamish. It's a here's a snazzy new bit of kit. This will solve all our problems. Mm. Whereas in fact, I mean, arguably on that one occasion it does because it. Because it results in, uh, you know, the, the, the British were going to get away at Dunkirk in the roundabout way. But it doesn't solve the actual problem of how you win that war, the battlefield issues of the questions of how you combine your operations. It, a tank in the end is, as, is just a piece of machinery in that respect, mm. isn't it? It's, it's the yeah. thinking around it and how you use it that's really important. Uh, absolutely. And Aris is ingrained on my heart. I'm wearing my 4RTR tie, t- tie today. I was the last adjutant of 4RTR. And, of course, the, the Aris counterattack with the 4th and the 7th um, Royal Tank Regiment. And a, and a fellow who used to live around here, I don't know if you ever met him, Jim, um, Peter Vaux, Brigadier Peter Vaux, who was a oh, troop leader. Oh, yeah, he's an amazing well, guy. In, in, in 4RTR, and he tells stories. You know, his Matilda, too, he had to put his rugby socks in the holes uh, to stop, you know, stop him getting cold. Uh, but he was part of that Arras <laughs> counterattack, uh, actually got captured by the Germans and escaped and made his way all the way back to the UK. But, um, yeah. He ended up in North Africa, didn't he? Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in him, I had the great honour when I was adjutant to do run the battlefield tour at Arras with wow. him and uh, oh, wow. General General Henry Foote, VCMC, Footy, oh, who... Who My commanded God. the Seventh Royal Tank Regiment uh, in, in Africa, and uh, is you know one of our Royal Tank Regiment's mo- most famous VCs. But but that the to me Aris always sits in my mind. And when I, yeah, uh, I, I sort of do a bit of advice in Ukraine these days. And when we're talking about how we, you know, how, how tanks should operate and you know how we make best advantage, exactly as you say, Al. You know, actually the Aris counterattack. Did work. I mean, in in the regiment, the Royal Tank Regiment, we say it was the forty eight hours that bought yeah. uh, the BEF the chance to get off the beach at Dunkirk. I, I know a lot of others will perhaps um, argue with that, but it it certainly had that that um, that shock action, that impact yeah. that made um, uh, made Rommel think for a bit. And yeah. once you start thinking, and you lose that. Um, 
uh, that shock action, that maneuver, uh, that's when you're most vulnerable. Yeah. And uh, well, it, it was. Uh, I think more to the point, it, it made von Kleist think. He then told von Rundstedt, who then ordered a halt order because he was worried that the, <laughs> yeah. that they were out on a limb too much, and that led to the whole halt order, which absolutely, you know, almost. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't do what ifs on this show, but but if we were, <laughs> then 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 you know, the chances are it would have been put. They would have all been rounded up. But the point is, it's the imperfect application of the technology. I mean, it, it absolutely, yeah. that's the effect it has. And after all, effect is effect is in the end what you're trying to achieve, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, the, all that talk during the Gulf War of effects-based operations, you know, which which is shock and awe, isn't it? Which is the idea that you you give you give the other side such a fright, he goes, actually, you know what, it's not worth it. It's the effect of Arras, isn't it? But it's not actually how you win in Europe in the end or in the desert with tanks, is it? It. it, it scraping things together and having a go no I, I, absolutely and um uh, and actually you know rommel rommel really demonstrated what good blitzkrieg good tank maneuver is about and yeah. j- just going back to your bit about firepower you might see behind me actually i've got a matilda 2 shell um yeah. which is which is tiny <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know accurate to a couple of hundred meters whereas you know the last tank i was in a challenger 2 you know 122 millimeter you know, we were we were hitting certainly in the first Gulf War. Admittedly, it was Challenger One, but it was same gun. You know, we we were hitting targets at two and a half thousand meters and taking them out, and uh, that inaccurately. And I, and w- when we switch forward to now, but lots of people are saying to me, you know, why are Western tanks? You know, what what is the magic about them? Well, the fact that they work at night, and you know that the ability to fight at night is such an advantage. The yeah, fact that they can fire very accurately on the move against moving vehicles up to two and a half k's. You know the the um, the Soviet tanks T seventy twos, even T eighties. You know, oh, cannot do that. And uh, and the other bit that that we mentioned earlier on is is the protection. You know, we're seeing T seventy twos blow up with, with admittedly end laws, which are fantastic bits of kit, but they're they're just a sort of light anti tank weapon, whereas. Uh, you know, a challenge to a leopard will take five or six direct hits from a T-72. And you'd like to think that you would still go on. Um, whereas, you know, one hit from a 120 millimeter against a T-72 or T-80 or even T-90 will take it out. Um, so that's why they have the advantage. I mean, it's it's fascinating to hear what, what, a, what a huge kind of sort of advantage in terms of protection, firepower and, and, and technological advancement those Challenger 2s have, and presumably Leopard 2s as well, and presumably Abrams as well. But generally speaking, I mean, do you think, do you think it's fair to say that n- not always kind of quality, quality, you know, super-duper tanks is the way... F- it's, not, not, it's, not, it's not the way forward, but it's not necessarily what you need. That I mean, it's very interesting, isn't it? when you just go back to the Blitzkrieg of 1940, I mean, German tanks are actually pathetic compared to you know, most of the French ones. I mean, the Char Bs and the Samoas, they're much bigger, they've got much better firepower, all the rest of it. And yet... You know, the first armored division is utterly destroyed on the fifteenth of May. French vibes armored division, that is. And, and you know, that's because their method is better. You know, they're they're operating absolutely with infantry. They're operating in cahoots with reconnaissance um, and, uh, of course, anti tank weapons, which do have a very high velocity. And they're also in total radio comms um, the whole time, in a way that the French aren't. You know, the Germans later on in the war obviously have the Tiger tank and they have the Panther and and. And for the most part, the Allies are predominant. Western Allies, at any rate, are predominantly dependent on Shermans above everything else, which are not an equal of the Tiger or the Panther in terms of firepower or armor. And yet, 
they win. And, and so sometimes, it, you know, isn't it just a numbers game, really? And, and it's application rather than necessarily having the swankiest piece of kit. I think you've abs- absolutely put your finger on it. And, uh, you know, f- funny enough, having this, people are saying to me, well, yeah, what will a couple of leopards or Challenger 2s make, make a difference? And conversely, I sort of a slightly different argument to you. I go, well, Look at, the le- look at the Tigers and Panthers back in the Second World War. You know, they weren't very numerous, but psychologically they had a massive impact. Um, you know, when you know, there's a, t- a couple of Tigers around, a couple of Panthers around, that, that really changed also people's Also very thinking. useful that a Tiger looked like a Panzer IV. Uh, entirely. So, uh, <laughs> but that, that, that affected people's minds. Um, so so there, is, there, there is a real quality in quality. Um, but absolutely, there is a real quality in quantity and, of course, how you use it. And that is, um, that, that is fundamental. Tanks are about manoeuvre um, and that is where they are best used, but concentrated with all the other arms you know, at points of weakness and where you need to move quickly. Uh, trying to explain to people that, you know, a, a, say, a tank brigade um, could, a modern tank brigade could move three or four hundred miles in a day um, before needing replenishment. You know that that is massive. You know that that is us moving from from Wiltshire. You know, almost the length of the country. You know, you, could, you can almost not imagine it. But then, if you turn that round to yeah, you know, you know, a modern conflict like uh, like Ukraine or even back to Iraq, if you can do that sort of maneuver, you can really dislocate and unhinge and get behind your enemy. So I think your, your absolute your quality does have a quality of its own, um, and that is what is making a difference in Ukraine at the moment. But it's no good unless you really know how to use it and how to make the most of it. But, but also numbers do count, don't they? I mean, I'm sort of thinking about, about us getting rid of our Nimrods, us getting rid of our, our Harriers, us getting rid of our, our Tornadoes, just because they've been usurped technologically by other... Um, by more modern, you know, the F-35 or, or the Typhoon or whatever. It doesn't mean to say that there's no role for a Harrier. It doesn't mean to say there's no role for a Tornado. Obviously, they've still or got to be t- Or a Tucano, even, which is the <laughs> thing the, the yeah, RAF you know have... I mean? have I mean, ju- they've just but, parked 80 Tucanos, and, you know, they're a fantastic ground attack platform, but but they're not in the headlines because they're not a fast jet, which is the, the other thing, isn't it, is that the snazzy kit can very often attract political attention or newspaper attention, which kind of starts to amount to the same thing in this day and age doesn't it whereas yes. the sort of the humdrum the ordinary the 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 thing that fills the plugs the gaps in in your operational uh uh setup tends to get overlooked and and which is after all jim the thing when we look at the study of the second world war people get hung up on tiger tanks rather than say uh anti-tank weapons because anti-tank weapons are are unglamorous and tiger tanks are, right. are, are super sexy and and you can see that in the political arguments now is it's all about it's all about typhoons rather than perhaps what have we actually got that you could provide now easily you know aside from the fact it takes five year RAF pilots are in a five year queue apparently to get get in a fast yeah to so get them in a plane you know we've got all these well we haven't anymore but we did have all these planes that we we've we've mothballed but I mean but, but I suppose my point is you know there was that old adage wasn't there which I think is entirely wrong incidentally but but sort of you know it took four four Shermans to knock out a um, a Tiger tank. Well, it doesn't matter when you've only got 1,500 Tiger tanks and you've got 49,000 Shermans. I mean, so what? You know, so that, that's my point, is that, is that numbers do count for a, for a lot. And, and 
this actually, you know, what you do see, I mean, the Russians obviously haven't used it very, very effectively, but the fact that they're scraping barrels and using sort of T-54s, and I even saw a T-34 being started up the other day. I mean, that, that, that's obviously a sign of desperation. But it, but it also shows that there is still a, a use for what we would consider out-of-date kit, surely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I've, I've been, Chris, well, the, the whole tank debate in, in Ukraine or for Ukraine you know, that, that myself and a few others have spearheaded, you know, your point to the politics are absolutely. I mean, uh, you, we, we claim a little bit of um, uh, success in getting those tanks to Ukraine, but, but it goes to the quantity issue. You know, we're, we're, hopefully Ukraine will get 300 you know, Leopard 2s, Challenger 2s sort of thing, um, which is a sort of armoured division probably. But you know, the scale of Ukraine, the scale of the fight, that's pretty small. But what people are forgetting, there are a thousand Ukrainians have still got a thousand yeah, T-62s and T-72s, and that is your mass. So you use your quality to punch through and create, um, you know, c- create the momentum, and then you use your mass to fill it up. And it's the same with aircraft. I, you know, I, I was um, uh, again. One has to be very when one's commentating on something like Ukraine. I'm very happy talking about tanks and people ask you to talk about aircraft and i realize that i'm on slightly thin ice but you know well, I, principles I, principles though aren't they uh, enti- yeah I, I mean it's all about the training I, and uh, i said when i converted from challenger one to challenger two it took me a morning um you know i was an experienced tank person i as a, a commander i was the second in command of two rtr at the time i only really needed to know how to fire the gun and use the radios so and what we've done with the ukrainians we've turned a six-month training uh, regime into six weeks so with the air, with the pilots i'm sort of going well you know if you're an experienced pilot does it really take you three years to learn how to no, fly of course a, it doesn't that's just absolute nonsense you you know perfectly well that anyone and it's just absolute bullshit but that's a way of building political inertia into the decision isn't it, it it's a way of saying yeah you can have them jam tomorrow which after all we live in the a polit- a political culture of jam tomorrow anyway so it's little surprise that it's applied to defense and to and to to this but, issue, but anyway. why is Ben Wallace saying that? I mean, I, I read him in the in the paper yesterday or something, saying you know. It would well, take he, I, I don't know if you read my piece in the Telegraph today about exactly about that about well, about, about jets that that it's you know we it's it's part of it's you know half of the equation is tanks, the other half is jets. You need to put it together and and except that they're not going to be there for twelve months. It sells a he- sends a hell of a signal. You know, Putin thinks he is going to see it out. We're going to lose interest. He's got 500,000 conscripts in the east there ready to throw into the trenches and he will outlast us. But by saying we're going to put jets there, it's going to take a year to get there. It's saying to him, we're in it for the long term. I mean, I think, you know, Ben has done a good job, but, you know, he's the political thing. Rishi, you know, he was very happy to take the advice on tanks. He's now taking the advice on aircraft. Um, and and But it's having an impact. It doesn't matter, I don't think, that we can only give them three typhoon. If it means that the Germans and Italians come up with 300, yeah. then job done. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. 
Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. One of the things, um, when the 14 challenges were announced, I, I, I sort of said ruefully on Twitter, I said, well, then that we're going to need 40 then to provide the spares. And, uh, uh, you know, because after all, Gulf War One assembling an armoured division was pretty difficult, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I was um, I, I went to Gulf War One with 14 20th Hussars. I, I was a, a troop leader in four RTR. Uh, we admittedly were chieftains, so we uh, and um, 14 20th were Challenger One. But I remember coming back at the end of the war and looking at our tanks. Our tanks were just like skeletons. They had no uh, guns on them. They had no tracks. They were completely and utterly um, sort of devastated. So to get two armoured brigades into the field. Actually, we had to strip out three armoured divisions. Um, so, but uh, and it's not much, not much difference now. Those, you know, I'm told, you know, getting 14 tanks into the field to Ukraine is, is costing a lot. I, I, I don't even know how many other cha operational challenges we've got available. I think a hundred at best. Well, because it, because um, there was a, a, Mark Urban wrote a very good book called The Edge a few years ago, how, hmm. how the Western powers lost their edge militarily and he he had that sort of I mean, entertaining stat that there were more more generals in the british army than there were main battle tanks and all that all that sort of you know he headline grabbing way, <laughs> way, of, way of putting it and uh, you know whether whether or not that, that's the case it is the, the thing that you know in all these discussions and and again when we talk about forty four thousand sherman tanks and 1500 tigers what you've always got to remember is the enormous what the, the the cloud of spares that hangs over each individual vehicle, <laughs> and, and, the long and tail of war, the, the huge tail of war, and so fourteen challenges, and and giving them to someone else, sending them to someone else, sending the people, training the people to maintain them, making sure you've got the spares and all that. That's actually that is that a logistical issue squared compared to if you were doing it yourselves? I mean, what's the what strain does it put on your on your sinews, as it were? I think um, it's a really 
a really interesting thing. I mean, just before I go on to that, I mean, did you know the RAF at the moment has more aircraft than it does have pilots, which is unbelievable. So, and yet you know, it's got a five-year queue to be a pilot. So, so my rather glib comment in the Telegraph today is, well, you know, the Ukrainians have got more pilots than aircraft. So, you know, let's let's even up the balance, give them some of ours so at least they can be flown. But but on the logistics side... Well, I think that's side, a good point. And the other thing, just to go back to the whole training thing, I mean, don't you remember there was that huge hoo-ha about, about why don't we use 3.7-inch heavy anti-aircraft guns in the desert? And the excuse was, from the leadership, the Army leadership back in, in, in at 8th Army, it takes too long to train them. Well, it doesn't take any minute <laughs> at all to train them on a 3.7. You know, you put the shell in the thing and point in the down. breach and fire point the gun it's down just, it couldn't be particularly when it's open sight and using it in an anti-tank rod you just point at the tank i mean it's absurd but it but it, again it's the hmm. same excuse that's being used again yeah, but 80 years on uh, absolutely on the logistics side i i'm slightly more upbeat um uh i think a lot of the old commentators the you know contemporaries above my sort of generation are remembering chieftain and, and centurion now, the last time the last time I commanded a Challenger two as two IC of two RTR, we went two and a half thousand miles without any mechanical issues, um, and that that is the sort of capability of a Challenger two. You know, they they do work. Um, they use a lot of fuel, but actually, when you're fighting in your own country like Ukraine, you know, you pull up to a fuel stop. Uh, petrol station and fill it up with diesel so you're not having to carry all your own stuff with you sure ammunition but again you know i mentioned earlier on you can go for 400 miles you've got 52 rounds in your turret um and enough everything else so actually you only really need to be replanned you know once every 24 hours so i think the the logistics issue yeah it's a, it's a problem and if there is an issue Certainly with Challenger 2 and the same with Leopard, it's plug and play. The problem with the engine, you whip it out and chuck a new one in. Okay, so that, that, that was the more I was going to say. I was going to say, isn't it, isn't it less fuel and more gaskets? Well, yeah, it, it, absolutely. And some of, the, some of the, the night sights and some of the, the electronics is now sort of 15, 20 years old. But, but reversionary modes, a bit like my reversionary mode because I've got no power at the moment, the reversionary modes in a Challenger 2, you know, exactly the same as a Matilda or a Sherman. You can virtually get back down to cranking the turret yourself and pressing, you know, firing it with no power at all. So, you know, from very rarely did one drive around in a Challenger 2 with all light screen. But quite frankly, you know, at least you had one light green, you were going forward uh, and you could have an effect. How does it, uh, uh, the, the Royal Tank Regiment, draw on its history and learn from its history. What's the process by which the army maintains its historical understanding with its experience? Because, because you know, after the Second World War, there were all these sort of historiographical waves that went, that went you know, into, for instance, you know, going to Goodwood and beholding the Goodwood battle and seeing it as an example of what happens when you've got tons of panzers coming at you and how you defend in depth and all that sort of stuff. And and you know which, uh, and the culture of mission command in NATO and all, all that sort of thing, how which 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 comes from an assessment of German ability to resist in the in the Second World War. How how does the tank road? How does a how does an institution like that keep an eye on its history, assess it, but balance it with the needs of today and all that sort of stuff? Because because after all, doctrine ex- exists in the organisation, doesn't it? 
in the culture more than it ever would in a book, if you see what I mean. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, culture is a really important thing. And I think the Royal Tank Regiment and regiments like the Parachute Regiment and others have, have it absolutely interred in their bones. Uh, and certainly when I was commanding officer of the first, you know, battlefield tours and learning from history w- was a key element. Uh, um, you mentioned Mark Urban, the first time I met him when I was CEO out in Iraq, and he came up to me on a, I think we were traveling to Baghdad on a C-130, and uh, he was he had heard that I was taking the regiment on a battlefield tour to the Peninsula War when we got back. And um, he said, well, Hamish, uh, he said, you must be CO1RTR. And I said, yeah. Um, and I didn't know him from Adam. And he said, well, you, you've obviously read my books on the Peninsula War. And I went, really? <laughs> what books have you written? And um, he, he then sent me rifles and the man who broke Napoleon's codes, um, and uh, which are brilliant books, absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, and I was fascinated by Peninsula War, not least because of Sharp. And we, we had this lovely old retired yeah, retired um, RTR brigadier, um, oh, not Ridgeway, it'll come to me. But he got so pissed off with everybody. Whenever we were at Talavera or Salamanca, people were saying, now, where did Sharp win his eagle here? And, and, <laughs> to, and to begin with, the brigadier sort of took it to good heart. And then he, he started getting very angry, saying, you remember, gentlemen, that Sharp is a fictitious figure. And the more cross he got, the more people got into it. Um, and, and, of course, Salamanca, fantastic <laughs> counterattack by, by the um, British cavalry, which, uh, which, again, was one of those great counterattacks in history. I think it is so important to, and certainly from the Royal Tank Regiment, Arras is, is something that everybody would hopefully be able to give you a strong view on. Yeah. And, um, you know, having met some of the people, admittedly, they're all sadly all dead now, who actually fought there and were involved in it. Um, but the principles of, of armoured manoeuvre and tank warfare, yeah, the principles are still the same. But I think as we've been saying, it's, we, we tend to forget them. Something shiny and new comes along. Does, you know, some people sort of think it, it sort of blanks everything out. I spent my last three years in the army was pretty much spent in Afghanistan. Each brigadier who came in with his brigade for six months won the war. And, um, you know, I, and for those of us who were there sort of all the time, you sort of and occasionally you go back to that after action reviews on how they won the war in Helmand. And we'd sort of go back and you know, make a few sort of facetious comments. But it, it was the fact that it, it was a culture at the time. In fact, people weren't really learning. They were sort of they were learning by the time they got to the end of the tours rather than, you know, going there properly trained. And I think it is so, so important. You know, a number of senior army officers who know that I have close links into Ukraine again. Well, you, you know, do do advise, you know, General X and General Y on you know, how we did this and how to do it. Uh, and my, my reaction generally is these guys have been fighting for eight months. They're doing a fantastic job. There is very little that I can tell a, a tank brigade commander or, or regimental tank commander in Ukraine how, he do, how to do his job. He, he, he knows what to do. We just need to give him the kit in order to do it. And by, by contrast, though, you could probably give the Russians some advice. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, the, the whole argument about, about numbers, um, you know, numbers do count, but they don't count if your morale is rubbish, you've got no re- you don't really understand why you're there, um, and, and your method is, is, is terrible. 
Um, I mean, if training's bad, your logistics, your, your supply chain is bad, you can have 500,000 recruits coming in. But if they're, if they're completely crap and they haven't been properly trained, they are literally cannon fodder, aren't they? So, so you know, all those tanks that were being blown up and you saw all those turrets sort of disappearing 30, 30 feet into the, into, into the air on, on TikTok and whatnot, um, that's because they were on their own. And, and they weren't obeying any of the rules of armor for the most part, weren't they? No camouflage at all. I've yet to see a tank, Russian tank, with any camouflage on it. Um, Isn't and that fascinating? And the, the other fascinating thing is how many turrets are lying on. I mean, it's, we, we know that Russian tanks are very poorly protected. But the fact that you know, even a fairly low caliber weapon is blowing a turret off a T-72 is, you know, is bizarre. So do you think, is, is that showing that the T-72s are kind of worse than you thought they were? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I I took a turret off a T-72 with a uh, a Law 90, a light, uh, a sort of the N-Law equivalent in the first Gulf War. And I, you know, actually, you know, I probably shouldn't be saying this, towards the end of the war when we had a bit of extra ammunition and we were told the war was ending. So, um, yeah, I, I came across a, uh, you know, a an empty T-72 and decided to, use a light anti-tank weapon against it that blew the turret off and we were all rather surprised um wow. yeah so i think i think we, we everybody has been surprised how poor the russian military are and and how poorly their kit is performing and the other bit to it is they're they're performing but they're just they don't look after their equipment um it's it's in a shocking state um the only people having really a go forward are that criminals of the Wagner group who but, but, but appear to fight with no rules. The, the Wagner group can't go, go on forever, can they? I mean, you know, because if you're sending over Wagner people to be, to be a, on a, effectively a suicide mission so that you can spot, so that they can then spot where the Ukrainians are, I mean, that's an expensive way of using your men. And, uh, and as the Red Army discovered in, in the Second World War, you know, sending over vast numbers of convicts to uh, to clear a minefield, for example, is effective on one level, but on another level, is is incredibly wasteful. And and I know there's a lot of criminals in 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 Russia, but you know, eventually the prisons are going to run out, aren't they? Oh, uh, uh, they must do. I mean, because I mean, they're getting shocking. slaughtered, aren't they? Well, Andy's had to, they've had to draw down from Syria and Mali and all the other places they've been getting up to no good. Um, the uh, the Wagner Group, haven't they? It's the other that the knock on effect security wise for for the Putin's foreign policy is that the Wagner group has had to withdraw from everywhere else uh, to meet, to meet the demand, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 the, the thing is, does it make you wonder though, Hamish had, had um, the balloon gone up in 1986, whether NATO would have been able to fend off the, the cause when we went to, we went to, um, uh, well, we're not allowed to say where we went, but we went to somewhere where they train artillery people very near Stonehenge, didn't we, Jim? Um, just yeah, just did. after, I'm not allowed to say where that was. You might be able to hear it, by the way. <laughs> uh, the Ukrainians are firing AS ninety this morning. Right. Okay. Wow. Gosh. <laughs> goodness. Um. Uh, we we uh, and and we went to the um the mess afterwards because it was the Royal Artillery sort of Historical Society all trying to like square itself off and figure out what to do next because their their museum was taken off them in it, firepower in Woolwich was closer. Anyway. And there was a wide variety of different people there. So there were there was a bloke who was four weeks out of Sandhurst going, God, I wish I could get over there and have a crack at the Russians. Right? There was another <laughs> there was another guy going, there was another a captain or something sort of saying, Well, you know, this is all very interesting. Trying him trying to be sanguine about it. 
And then there was some it was old incredibly gun- smooth bloke, wasn't there? That's right. And then there was some old gunner general going, well, it turns out the Russians are absolutely rubbish. <laughs> Soviets would have, been a, would have been a walkover and all this sort of thing. So, so because after all, the, the, the equipment here we're talking about is the stuff that would have been on the would have been on the battlefield in 1985, 1986, or 19, you know, or well, Challenger Two hadn't quite come online then. Or Challenger yeah. One, but 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 do you think do you think things would have been like this with in a NATO encounter or? Because a lot of what we're talking about is equipment and, and organisation and yeah. doctrine as much as anything else. Uh, I think it would have been shocking. I mean, I I was uh, chieftain in chieftain, based in Osnabrück, you know, where our GDR German inner defensive border positions were 150 miles from Osnabrück. And the idea was we used to do these crash outs called Active Edge once a month, usually in the middle of the night, usually early in the morning after you'd had a mess night. So everybody was in a pretty shocking state. And we'd jump into these 52 or 57 chieftains and start steaming towards our, you know, along the autobahn to our positions. I think um, the time I remember doing it, I think 30% of the tanks got to the position. The other rest of them were, were strewn from the gates of Infel Caserna in Osnabrück all the way. Uh, and I remember sitting in that position in what we'd call three Romeo in an MBC suit and a respirator just thinking, this is crazy. This is absolute madness. Um, What on earth are we going to do here? Um, And the other really profound thing, I I had the opportunity to – we did a massive battlefield tour in about 2000, I think it was. And it was with the Russians. It was with the Czechs. Basically, we started off – the Allies started off in Berlin, and then we fought all the way back – to um, the sort of uh, Osnabrück area in a battlefield tour going back in stages with the German generals, uh, rather the Russian generals, giving their plan and then various British and American generals giving their plan for for a contemporary battle. And I remember one particular area, and it was um, somewhere west of Berlin, a couple of hundred miles, and I was bizarrely there. I'd just come out of Afghanistan, uh, not Afghanistan. I was there as the um, I-Star, Intelligence Surveillance Target Acquisition Specialist. In fact, it must have been about 20, 2007 because we had been in Afghanistan. And the general who was describing how he was going to cut off this um, uh, Russian tank division was relying entirely on on UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles for his surveillance. And um, they were going to key all his assets into position. And um, and that's why I'd come back from being the, the deputy I-star in, in Afghanistan. And the um, I can't remember which general it was. It was CGS at the time. So it must have been, might have been Danat, had said to me, right, Hamish, what, what, do, you, what do you think of, can you explain, you know, give, give a view on the general's plan for his counterattack here and his use of UAVs. And it was one of those classic German days where the clouds literally hung about 10 feet above the trees. (laughs) And I just looked up in the air and I said, perhaps the general has spent too long in the clear skies of Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not sure his UAVs would see anything today. And that was it. And the it was absolutely this whole idea of relying on technology, over relying on technology, but actually not looking at the situation. 
So um, a really rambling answer your question, Al. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been, uh, I think it would have gone nuclear very quickly. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, it's it, it was retreat to the Rhine and then call Downing Street, wasn't it? Basically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're in a horrendous business. Do you think if we send 14 Challenger 2s, what that means is we'll send 28 and then we'll send 56 and and, and scrape together? You know, is this an escalation in commitment possibility? But will the tank think... museum suddenly be, yeah, uh, be busy? clean. Kind of... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> getting things back on the road. Funny old All those thing, Challenger <laughs> Yeah. I I don't I you know I I've been one of the strongest supporters of this and and actually say send the lot I mean they they're doing nothing sat in Salisbury Plain rusting send the lot but what what the idea was is to get the others to put theirs in you know there are two and a half thousand leopard twos in Europe um, those That's are the sort lot, of numbers one has noted it's all gone quite quiet and I, and actually the whole operational security piece around all this equipment um one tries to particularly with journalists say you know that there is a war going on you know we don't really want to tell the russians exactly where everything is um but what has happened since since we've committed those 14 challenges is actually a lot of other people are coming on board add 100 plus leopard ones and almost every day people are committing leopard twos so i think we're quite hopeful that by early summer the ukrainians should have about 300 plus leopard twos predominantly the americans are talking about abrahams i mean again i think that's a bit political because they're actually making new ones without the um their their, uh, composite armor on them so they're going to take about a year but the Germans needed the Rus- the Americans to commit tanks. So actually, I, I think um, it is significant, and I think the numbers will grow. Um, and as far as escalation, I, I'm not in tar- – the escalation bit I don't get. I don't see where Putin can go. I think his, he's not going global nuclear. That's just not going to happen. I think his tactical nuclear weapons don't work, and even if they do work – They've got to be moved hundreds of miles to get them in range of Ukraine. And, you know, do we really think the, you know, our intelligence services are not tracking every tactical nuclear weapon? Of course they are. I mean, my big concern is is actually that we've seen the power infrastructure being destroyed. Well, there are five massive nuclear power stations, particularly one Zaporizhia. Uh, And one thing I've been doing is is helping them uh, develop a, a network of protection the detectors around them. And I also run a, a training course on Telegram for civilians in Ukraine on what to do in the event of, of uh, accidents or attacks. We did the same right. in Syria for chemical attacks, and that worked very well. Everybody had a little app on their phone, told them what to do, and uh, and it's working too. So, um, so, again, a rambling answer to your question, I think 14 Challenger 2s is absolutely brilliant. I'd like to see every one of our Challenger 2s go there. Um, because quite frankly, you know, defeating the Russians in Ukraine is is what they were designed to do. And what about those jets then, Hamish? Because um, I mean, we were having a little bit of an exchange the other day, weren't we, on email about this? And I was I was I was sort of wondering why they why there is this reluctance, and I wondered whether it was because it was just it's a little bit easier to kind of creep out of airspace and all this kind of stuff. And and you 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 came back and said no, it's very simple to stay within airspace, basically. Uh, 
long and short of it. Um, so there isn't any reason, really, apart from they're just incredibly expensive pieces of kit, I suppose. Well, I don't. I don't think so. I, th- I think it really is. Um, it's the training burden and uh, and, and the logistic support. Um, uh, and in the short term, we, we should get as many MIGs as we as possible to the Ukrainians. But in the longer term, yeah, absolutely. I think the the plane should should go there. I mean, it, there there is quite rightly a huge concern of of how that leaves us. You could you could argue that that actually these typhoons and and F thirty the F thirty five is never going to go. I can't, you know, no way, and it probably shouldn't. Um, but we we've got enough to protect our skies around the country, even if we give a few away. Um, and quite frankly, if if we we're using Challenger two to protect the the case of Dorset, then you know we we're in a whole different game. So um, I uh, I see no reason for us not to give the aircraft, despite except it's going to take a long time. And um, people wanting instantaneous gratification, if you like, particularly the politicians. Um, this is you know it's going to take a long time. Well, because the other but, thing it will require is reconfiguring um, defence industrial policy, wouldn't it? If you're if you're going to have to start, you know, it, 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 um, the MOD made a new order for end laws in December last year, which is interesting, given when we started handing them to the, you know, giving to the Ukrainians, the, the, the lag in that kind of decision making and the idea that there's no money for anything is, the, is, is actually the recurrent theme is what well, all these promises are made. Then the Treasury goes, no, afraid not. And, uh, it, you know, if you're going to if you're starting to hand tanks over that may get that may get destroyed. You're going to have to replace them, so you're going to have to actually grasp the nettle of the, uh, this decision about whether you replace Challenger Two, whether you upgrade it, extend it, and, um, and then what happens with all your other kit? You know, we, we, if we've, we've sent all, we're sending most of our A90s, aren't we? So we're not going to have any self-propelled artillery ourselves. So uh, it's like it's like lend-lease, isn't it, Jim? It's like um, uh, it's like lending someone some chewing gum you don't you don't ask for the lending chewing the gum back afterwards which is the, 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 the how it taps but, but also more, more than that it just it, i just I, it, it's just, the thing i don't understand is everyone says well we can't possibly afford to have a higher defense budget and we can't possibly do this and we can't possibly do that but even in the three-day week in the 1970s we were still spending kind of what was it four or five percent of 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 the budget on um on defence, and and somehow we survived and emerged into the kind of yuppies of the eighties and and so on and the boom times. So, uh, you know, I just don't buy it. And and also, if you're, is it isn't there a case of you know if you've got more defence contracts, you've got more people in work, and in which case you've got more people to tax, or is that very very cod cod economics? I mean, I mean, the point is, that it really <laughs> worries me that that our defence is is so poor and so run down and. You know, now I hear that we're going to align ourselves to the Scandi countries and, you know, that's where our emphasis is going to be up in sort of Sweden and Finland and Norway. Great. I mean, you know, because I, I guess skis are cheaper than tanks, but, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's feeble. It's, it's, and it's worrying because we still might have a nuclear capability, but we don't seem to have a capability of anything else. We've got aircraft carriers that don't work. Uh, we've got no support vessels. I mean, you know, it's interesting just reading about the Salerno 
um, invasion. And even there, the battleships are being escorted by destroyers. The aircraft carriers have a whole raft of people around the aircraft carriers, ships around the aircraft carriers to make sure that the aircraft carriers are absolutely fine. You know, we've got these two absolutely super-duper aircraft carriers, but no real ships to support them. And it's a bit like sending a tank down the street without the infantry, isn't it? I think one of the challenges, the the Integrated Defence and Security Review, which now is two or three years old, you know, was all about cyber and space. And now we're suddenly realising that actually that's probably not what we require. Um, but the British defence industry, you're right, you know, just it's been run down so much. Uh, there is a seems to be a view of the MOD procurers that companies have stuff on their shelves ready to go, which absolutely they don't. And the lead time for tanks and aircraft is absolutely massive. And I think people have, you know, with, with all the dreadfulness of COVID and, you know, all the other ills that are suffering at the moment, people are, have sort of slightly forgotten about defence. And they're now seeing what's happening in Ukraine. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's still quite a long way off. But but actually, you know, it ain't. <laughs> you know, Ukraine is what a two and a half hour flight through our camp been to Kiev for a while um, but it's close and it, it, it is it is a battle it is a war in Europe um, which, which of course you know the last one was pretty devastating and we must make absolutely certain that it doesn't spread any further than it's spread at the moment um, at, which is why giving giving our tanks and aircraft um, really the next escalation for us is boots on the ground yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't think anybody wants that yeah yeah well well, thanks, Hamish. I mean, this is all what been, a this, fascinating conversation. That's been brilliant. Well, and also, also uh, pretty sobering, um, if I'm honest. Yeah, but 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 good meaty uh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what yeah. I would say, I mean, just to, you know, the, all the Ukrainians I know and the military, you know, they are absolutely top notch, yeah. and you know, they are the, the whole country is fighting, and you know, and I'm sure when it's all over, and hopefully it's soon, some of the stories, you know, the heroism. That, that's going to come up out mm. is is absolutely unbelievable and i'm sure you know some of the some of the battles i mean we, we we see a lot on tiktok and all the rest of it um but that you know the pure horror and violence and noise is is just unbelievable so you know the ukrainians are you know whatever whatever faults they might have and we all have our faults actually you know keeping keeping the russian hordes back is something that we will thank them for, I expect, for a very long time. Well, and if anyone's going to know how mo- mobile warfare works, it's going to be them, isn't it? I mean, people will be going Get to get them into Ukrainians. NATO quick, surely. Well, yeah, well, well, and people will be going to pick their brains for for decades, won't they? About how they how they've well, done what they've done so far, at least. They're, they're going to be the number one military power in Europe, aren't they? So yeah. you know, we, we, we want to. Well, well, I look forward to hearing them speak at Chalk Valley in a couple of <laughs> well, years. Well, so do I. <laughs> well, and even and even we have Waste Fest. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Hamish. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And we'll um, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you again very soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. Bye.